A note before we begin. This episode contains discussions of child exploitation, abuse, and murder. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. It's been 15 years since Madeline McCann was abducted from a beachside resort in Portugal. In all that time, her parents, Jerry and Kate, have never let up in the search. They've fought to keep their daughter's face in the public eye and will continue to do so until we know the truth. But Kate and Jerry haven't always been in control of the narrative. Media attention is a double-edged sword. Too many times in this case, rumors were printed as fact. The truth was sidelined by speculation. So I need you to go into today's episode with a blank slate, because any assumptions you have, based on that headline you read one time, they're probably wrong. And it distracts us from what's most important, looking for Madeline. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a family. While they were on vacation, the unthinkable happened. Their firstborn child was abducted from her bed and vanished without a trace. Her name is Madeline McCann. Hindsight is really just a fancy word for regret. All the things we would have done differently if we'd known the ending in advance. Some of us replay events over and over again in our minds, looking at all the alternatives, how just one different choice could have changed everything. That's the trap of hindsight. We like to pretend it's a learning experience, but most of the time, it's just salt in the wound. Let's go back to May 3rd, 2007, the sixth day of the McCann's vacation in Praia de Luz, Portugal. Up to now, the weather hasn't been what they'd hoped for for a beachside holiday. A bit chilly, some rain. But today, the sky is clear. Everyone enjoys the sunshine. Kate and Jerry McCann play tennis at their resort. Their two-year-old twins spend the day playing in an activity group of other toddlers. Three-year-old Madeline visits the beach with a separate group of three to five-year-olds. She goes for a boat ride and swims in the ocean. All of the time in the sun wipes Madeline out. That afternoon, she asks Kate to carry her back to their resort apartment. By bedtime, she's so exhausted, she's practically asleep before Kate can finish her bedtime story. After lights out, Kate and Jerry chat over a glass of wine. About an hour later, they head to dinner. The McCanns are vacationing with a group of couples at the Ocean Club Resort. There are nine adults and eight children total. The resort is spread throughout Praia de Luz and surrounded by residential areas and locals. 
but there are check-in points at every entrance, so it still feels isolated. The section the McCanns and their friends are staying in has two multi-story apartment villas, two pools, tennis courts, and one restaurant, a tapas bar. Almost every night, the parents gather at the tapas bar for dinner for a standing 8.30 reservation. This is important. Everyone chose to stay at the Ocean Club Resort because they offer childcare, playgroups during the day, and a nursery room at night. But the hours and logistics of the nursery turn out to be disruptive to the kids' bedtime routines. So to still spend time with each other in the evening, the adults come up with a solution. Throughout dinner, every 20 minutes or so, one of them will pop back into their apartment, listen at the door, make sure no one's crying or making a fuss, then return to the meal. This might seem a little elaborate in the age of 5G baby monitors, but it's an arrangement that all of the adults feel comfortable with. The tapas bar has outdoor seating and a direct line of sight to their villa. It's less than a minute's walk, not even 100 yards. It's like having dinner in someone's backyard while the kids are inside. They arrange for an 8.30 dinner time to guarantee this kind of convenience but the tapas bar doesn't typically do standing reservations. Guests usually have to book day of. So to explain why the McCann party needed an exception, someone at the resort notes in the reservation book for anyone to see that they plan to leave their children alone in their apartments. On the night of May 3rd, around 8.30 p.m., Jerry and Kate McCann walked down to the tapas bar. The rest of the couples gradually join and they sit down to eat. According to the timeline provided to police, just before 9 p.m., one of the dads, Matt Oldfield, goes to check on his child. When he gets back to the table, he tells the McCanns that he also had a listen outside the window of their apartment and all was well. Even still, five minutes later, Jerry trucks back to apartment 5A to check on the kids himself. 5A is on the ground floor of one of the villas and is bordered by a small side street. Jerry walks the 100 yards from the tapas bar, past the pool, out to the road, and up to the apartment. There are two ways to get inside. There's a main entrance connected to the parking lot, but it's faster for Jerry to use the patio door. He goes through a small gate, just a few steps off the street, and enters through the sliding glass door which the McCanns left unlocked to make it easier to check on the children. Jerry sneaks down the hall and into the kids' bedroom. According to him, he watches them sleep for a while, just feeling like a proud dad, filled with love for his beautiful children. Then after the moment passes, he returns to dinner. At 9.25, it's Kate's turn, but Matt Oldfield offers to go for her. He says he'll stop in 5A on his way back from his own check. Inside the McCann's apartment, Matt stands just outside the children's bedroom. The door is slightly ajar, so he can peek in through the gap without going inside. He sees some light and hears a noise. He assumes it's just one of the twins rolling over in their bed. So he returns to the tapas bar and gives the report. At 10 p.m., Kate McCann makes her trip to 5A. She also uses the unlocked patio door. But when she gets inside, she sees light spilling out from the children's bedroom into the hallway. 
The bedroom door is standing open, more than it should be. As she reaches the door, a gust of wind slams it shut. Kate rushes into the bedroom and sees the window facing the street is open. The shutters are raised, and Madeline's bed is empty. She frantically searches the apartment for maybe 20 seconds, but her daughter's not there. Kate runs back to the tapas bar shouting, Madeline's gone, Madeline's gone. The group abandons the dinner table and rushes back to apartment 5A. Kate's howling with grief. Witnesses will later say they'd never heard cries like that before in their lives. Screams of raw anguish and terror. Jerry is also overcome, at one point crying so hard he has to lie down on the floor. He tries to pull himself together, focus on what to do next, but he keeps having to stop and process his emotions. It shocks some of his friends to see him like this. Jerry is a doctor, usually a very strong and practical guy. On top of it all, Kate blames herself. She tells Jerry, I've let her down. We've let her down, Jerry. We should have been here. Hindsight strikes for the first time. Kate keeps replaying something that happened during breakfast that morning. Madeline asked why Kate hadn't come when she and her brother were crying. Kate didn't know what her daughter meant. She didn't hear the children crying the night before. Before she could ask for more details, Madeline got distracted and moved on. In the moment, Kate let it go. But now, every worst-case scenario flashes through her mind. Was there someone else in the children's room last night without her knowing? Did they get spooked and leave when the kids started crying? Did they come back tonight and take Madeline? A few of the dads form a search party, fanning out over the resort, checking every place they can think of. Matt Oldfield goes to the Ocean Club reception desk and asks them to call the police. According to phone records, the call is placed at 10.41 p.m., a little over half an hour after Kate realizes Madeline is missing. In the meantime, more search parties form, made up of the Ocean Club staff and guests. Several Praia Deluge locals also join in. Kate and Jerry McCann stay in their apartment, waiting for police, feeling helpless. And when two GNR officers arrive at 11 p.m., that feeling only gets worse. The GNR is the local division of the police. They're more like first responders, not investigators. They do a routine search of the apartment and take the McCann statements, but not much else. They don't even seal off the bedroom as a crime scene. They do bring in some German shepherds at some point, but they're crowd dogs, not trained to trace human scent. The GNR officers only speak Portuguese, so the McCanns have to talk to them through a translator, which is time-consuming and frustrating. And whether it's the language barrier or cultural differences, the McCanns don't feel like the officers grasp their sense of urgency. They need manpower, roadblocks, whatever is the Portuguese equivalent of the National Guard. But their point doesn't seem to be getting through. It takes the GNR an hour to alert the other police division called the PJ. 
they're the major crimes unit, the FBI of Portugal. But when two PJ officers finally arrive at the apartment after midnight, they're shocked by what they find. Between the McCanns, their friends, and resort staff, dozens of people have been in the apartment, touching things, moving things, looking for signs of Madeline. Now, of course, they tore the place apart. They had to make sure Madeline wasn't there. But it means that any helpful trace evidence is long gone. Around 4 a.m., the PJ officers pack it in. They seal off 5A and move Jerry, Kate, and the twins to a different apartment nearby. After they leave, the McCanns feel abandoned, frustrated, and terrified. Authorities just aren't getting it. It's been six hours. It would take only a third of that time for someone to drive Madeline across the border into Spain or hop on a boat and sail to Morocco. They need real help before it's too late. So Kate, Jerry, and their friends reach out to anyone with connections to the British media. By 7.30 a.m. on May 4th, Madeline's disappearance is featured on Sky News. It's then picked up by other outlets and quickly spreads across Europe. Involving the media is an act of desperation, but the McCann's figure, the more people hear about Madeline, the more people there will be looking for her. What they don't know is they've awoken a sleeping giant and nothing can prepare them for the consequences. On Saturday, May 12, 2007, Jerry and Kate McCann celebrate their daughter's fourth birthday without her. It's been nine days since Madeline disappeared. Journalists and news crews have flooded Praia de Luz. The whole world seems to be united in the search for Madeline. Kate and Jerry put forth a public statement that reads, We would like to mark today by asking people to redouble their efforts to help find Madeline. Please keep looking. Please keep praying. Please bring Madeline home. Sympathy for the McCanns is overwhelming. The story deeply resonates with the public. A three-year-old girl, snatched from her bed in a vacation resort, vanished without a trace. It plays on a primal fear. Every parent's worst nightmare. Strangers donate hundreds of thousands of pounds to the Find Madeline Fund. British police and diplomats fly to Praia de Luz to assist in the investigation. Madeline's photo is printed on posters, t-shirts, bumper stickers, and more, along with the tagline, look into my eyes. Madeline has a distinct birthmark in the iris of her right eye. Even if her abductor tried to disguise her or cut her hair, it's an identifying feature. And now the world is looking for it. But there are downsides to all the attention. The police are inundated with reported sightings from all over the world. It's impossible to sort through the credibility of, let alone investigate them all. Reporters follow the McCanns everywhere, even to church. They take sound bites from anyone willing to talk, even those without any tie to the case. Madeline's story has proven to sell papers. 
Now every editor wants to print the latest angle, the latest clue. But there isn't much, just crumbs. It's illegal in Portugal to disclose almost any information about an open investigation. The PJ needed special permission just to announce that Madeline was missing. When the McCanns revealed that she'd been abducted, they technically broke the law. Reporters stand outside the PJ office every day, but they're stonewalled, and the lack of information creates an atmosphere of tension for both the journalists and the PJ officers. There's so much pressure on both sides to crack the story, and eventually, it starts to boil over. A few UK outlets go after the PJ, by essentially implying they're incompetent and lazy, that they're mishandling the case and missing opportunities. Pretty much everything the McCanns have been thinking up to this point, but haven't been able to express publicly. The coverage is not only embarrassing for Portugal, it's offensive. The PJ is considered their elite squad, but the reason they don't have any leads is not for lack of trying. Records from the PJ's investigation actually show the many lengths they went to. It's just that none of their leads panned out. Which is unfortunate, because almost two weeks into the case, the PJ's desperation to save face leads the investigation in a very troubling direction. This is the point in the case where rumors and speculation start to override the truth. One of the many resources I used for this episode is Netflix's 2019 documentary series, The Disappearance of Madeline McCann. Jerry and Kate have spoken out against it, not because the reporting is bad or untrue. It's exhaustive, actually. But it entertains the many red herrings and falsehoods surrounding the case all for the sake of dramatic tension. The McCanns don't see how that does anything to help the search for Madeline. And I couldn't agree more. I'm an advocate first and a storyteller second. So as I continue the episode, if you think I'm skipping over details that you've heard in other coverage and think are important to the case, trust me, they're not. They're not even worth repeating. The only reason to bring any of it up would be to clear people's names, because so many people in this case have had their lives turned upside down by misinformation. Like Robert Murat. On May 14th, the police raid Murat's house, which is only 200 yards from apartment 5A, and bring him in for questioning. After so many days without progress, the media has become just as desperate as the police and this potential lead is like chum in the water for reporters. They immediately pounce on him and dig up every detail they can find about his life, his past, his divorce. When the info runs dry, they turn to blatant speculation, but the PJ has no evidence to justify their suspicion of Murat. They're following a tip supplied by a British journalist who just has a gut feeling about him. See, Robert Murat volunteered as a translator early on in the investigation, as a sort of go-between for the British press and the Portuguese authorities, because he's fluent in both languages. At some point, they suggested that maybe he was being a little too helpful, trying to insert himself into the case too much. And that's it. Beyond this wild hunch, 
investigators don't find anything on Marat's property related to Madeline's disappearance, or any other crimes for that matter. But the PJ doesn't back down. At this point, they kind of can't. They need movement in the case. Marat described his interrogation experience and the disappearance of Madeline McCann, saying, quote, They were telling me that I was guilty, and my time was up, and the more I said I hadn't done, the more they said I lied. I felt like they were going to do anything and everything to make it me. Incredibly, Marat doesn't break under police pressure, even after 19 hours of interrogation. Without a confession and without any evidence against him, the PJ have to let him go, but they still label him as an Arguido. Arguido status means that there's not enough evidence to charge you with any crime, but you're more than just a suspect. You're an official person of interest, so it's pretty serious. And because of the secrecy laws in Portugal, Marat's not allowed to respond to the rumor mill that keeps churning. He can't defend himself. He has to sit back and watch as the police spin their wheels, and he's flayed in the court of public opinion. And eventually, this exact same scenario happens to others, including Kate and Jerry McCann. In early August, around three months after Madeline's disappearance, a few Portuguese newspapers report that the PJ no longer believe Madeline was abducted. They think she was killed, and they're investigating suspects related to that theory. They don't outright say who, but the press puts two and two together pretty quickly after they see officers searching the McCann's apartment and rental car. An article goes to print claiming the PJ has DNA evidence basically proving Madeline died in apartment 5A and was moved using the rental car. The backlash against the McCanns is immediate and devastating. So many people feel lied to, betrayed. For months, they poured their time, their money, and their sympathy into finding Madeline. And now the PJ tells them the McCanns made the whole thing up? The media monster Kate and Jerry unknowingly created eats them alive. Headline after headline condemns them, speculating on their guilt. And through it all, the McCanns can't say anything. They can't comment on an open PJ case, even to address the lies. Then somehow, it gets worse. On September 6th, the PJ brings Kate in for questioning. And from the questions they ask, it becomes clear what authorities think happened. They believe Madeline died by accident in the apartment, and the McCanns tried to cover up their neglect. Officers even say they have evidence to prove Kate and Jerry used their rental car to transport Madeline's body. Even though the McCanns didn't rent a car until late May, three weeks after Madeline's disappearance, the PJ don't consider that an issue. They think the McCanns hid the evidence that whole time, right under their noses, maybe in a freezer. They try to offer Kate a plea deal. If she admits Madeline died accidentally, that she and Jerry staged the kidnapping, she'll probably only be sentenced to two years at most. If Kate doesn't take the deal, they threaten that they have enough evidence to try her for murder. She could face life in prison. Kate has to sit and listen to this for 11 hours. 
Can you imagine what that must have felt like for her? Your daughter has been missing for 126 days. For weeks, you've had to read headlines making all kinds of baseless claims. That you sedate your children so they sleep through the night. That your husband is not Madeline's father. That your visits to church are somehow an admission of guilt. You do your best to shrug it off. Accept it as just a steep cost in the public search for your daughter. But now, you realize the police believe the rumors. In fact, they're the ones who leaked them to the press in the first place. Which means that for the past month, while they've been coming up with freezer theories, they haven't been looking for Madeline. That's the blow that almost breaks you. Not when they bring your husband in for questioning too. Not when they name you both Arquitos. Not when you have to stand in front of a hundred reporters who've decided your guilt. It's the horrifying reality that the men tasked with bringing your daughter home have abandoned her. But you don't break. You can't. There's no reason to wait around for the PJ to do their jobs while they threaten you with jail time. So you pack up your family and fly back to the UK. It's a hard choice leaving Portugal, but ultimately it's what's best for Madeline because you're the only one still searching. It's July 21st, 2008. Madeline McCann has been missing for 445 days and the Portuguese authorities are closing her case. They have no new leads to follow. The evidence has dried up. Authorities promise to reopen the case if new evidence emerges. But until then, Madeline's file is archived. Jerry and Kate McCann's Arguido status is lifted. So is Robert Moratz. But even still, a lot of the Portuguese public read between the lines. They assume the case is closed because it's been solved. The McCanns are guilty and authorities just don't have enough evidence to bring them to trial. One of the lead PJ investigators writes a book about the case stating just that. And his book is later made into a TV documentary, broadcast to millions. The McCanns sue him for libel, but by that point, the damage is done. In the minds of so many, Madeline is considered dead. They stop looking. And this happens despite the fact that when authorities close Madeline's case in 2008, all of the reports from their investigation are made public. And the truth behind those false allegations against the McCanns comes to light. Turns out, the Portuguese police placed a lot of weight on the work of two crime scene investigation dogs. They indicated the presence of human blood and body decomposition in both apartment 5A and the McCann's rental car. The PJ officers removed several samples and sent them for forensic analysis to a lab in the UK. But even before they got the results back, investigators shifted their focus towards the McCann's as suspects. When the UK lab sent over their results, a PJ officer translated the report from English to Portuguese and provided the summary to the rest of the team. Regarding the apartment sample, the officer wrote, quote, all of the confirmed DNA components coincide with corresponding components in the DNA profile of Madeline McCann, end quote. 
about the car sample, he wrote, quote, 15 of the identified DNA components coincide with the corresponding components in the DNA profile of Madeline McCann, this having 19 components, end quote. Taken at face value, the report seemed like a smoking gun. It was leaked to the media as definitive proof. But when the PJ officer translated the report, he didn't include everything. The sample from the apartment provided only a partial DNA profile. Yes, the markers matched Madeline's, but they matched other people too. The UK report clarified that, quote, Elements of Madeline's profile are also present within the profiles of many of the scientists here in Birmingham, myself included, end quote. Meaning that the partial DNA profile didn't provide enough information to give a conclusive match to anyone, let alone Madeline. As for the sample from the car, there were 37 total DNA components, of which only 15 matched Madeline's profile. It's far from definitive evidence. Madeline shares DNA with her parents as well as her siblings, all of whom had been in the rental car before the samples were taken. Ultimately, in their final report, the UK lab concluded that there were, quote, no conclusive indications that justify the theory that any member of the McCann family had contributed DNA to the result, end quote. In other words, the DNA evidence was meaningless. As for the crime scene dogs, 5A was a resort apartment. Dozens of people had stayed there. According to journalists Anthony Summers and Robin Swan, the man who stayed in 5A the week before the McCanns had cut himself while shaving and walked around the apartment with tissues trying to stop the bleeding for about 45 minutes. The fact that the dog signaled the presence of human blood wasn't a smoking gun, far from it. But the PJ officers wanted the dogs to be right. They wanted the case to be solved. And frankly, the public wanted it too. If Kate and Jerry were to blame, it restored a sense of safety. Their children were safe because, well, they weren't killers. It's a heartbreaking example of what can happen when investigations force evidence to fit pre-existing theories rather than follow it where it leads. It allowed the world to give up on Madeline. But Kate and Jerry never stopped looking. And that should be the most powerful indicator to anyone who still doubts their innocence. If they were involved in any way, the McCanns would have been glad to see the world move on, the spotlight fade, happy to hide in the shadows, having gotten away with it. But that's not what happens. After leaving Portugal, the McCanns hire a series of private investigators to keep working on Madeline's case. Over the years, they turn up several fresh leads, but ultimately none pan out. In 2011, as citizens of the UK, Jerry and Kate call on the British government to step in. And eventually, after a very public campaign, their request is granted. Scotland Yard forms a task force called Operation Grange, and the PJ in Portugal reopens their investigation to work in conjunction with them. Over the last 15 years, all of these investigators have pursued dozens upon dozens of leads, suspects, and hotline tips. I can't cover them all, 
but I've chosen a few that I find particularly compelling based on my research. There's reason to believe the McCann's apartment was being watched during their vacation. Three different people saw a man lingering around apartment 5A. One witness saw him leaning against the wall opposite the apartment patio, staring at it. A few days later, she saw the same man again, watching the apartment. Another witness reportedly saw a man exit apartment 5A on the afternoon of May 3rd, the day Madeline disappeared. She watched him look both ways, then close the gate behind him. She said he looked, quote, as if he did not want anyone to know he was coming and going. And this could explain how an intruder was able to get in and out of the apartment undetected in such a short time frame, between the McCanns and their friends coming back to check on the kids. The McCanns followed the same routine almost every night throughout their vacation. They went to the tapas bar at 8.30 p.m. and then came back every 20 minutes or so. If someone was watching them throughout the week, it would have been pretty easy to predict their movements. Two of the three witnesses gave similar descriptions of the man they saw. His face was pockmarked and pimpled, but the third simply described him as tall, Caucasian, with short, fair hair. Yet another witness statement might be able to explain this discrepancy. According to them, they saw two men out on the balcony of apartment 5C, only a few doors down from the McCanns, an apartment that was supposed to be unoccupied. Now, if all of these witnesses saw the same two people and apartment 5A was indeed being watched, the question is, why? In March, 2008, 10 months after Madeline disappeared, the British police sent an email to Portuguese authorities. It read, quote, Intelligence suggests that a pedophile ring in Belgium made an order for a young girl three days before Madeline McCann was taken. Somebody connected to this group saw Maddie, took a photograph of her, and sent it to Belgium. The purchaser agreed the girl was suitable, and Maddie was taken." End quote. Now, Praia de Luz is a resort destination geared toward tourism, and there are dozens of other similar beachside towns situated along Portugal's coast in an area known as the Algarve. But the area doesn't just attract tourists. It also attracts smugglers, drug runners, and human traffickers. An advocate explains in The Disappearance of Madeline McCann that the Algarve is frequently used as an entry point for child traffickers, and the operators have the ability to move victims across European borders in a matter of hours. According to the Portuguese Association for Victim Support, the majority of children trafficked through the region are coming from Africa and into Europe, not the other way around. But there have been a handful of notable cases exposing child sexual abuse and child pornography rings in Portugal itself. For example, staff at a state-run institution called Casa Pia supplied the children in its care to pedophile rings for years before it was exposed. It was, of course, an awful possibility for the McCanns to grapple with. Kate has said, quote, the idea that my Madeline was taken by a pedophile is my worst fear. I became consumed by it. It was torture, end quote. So far, 
Operation Grange hasn't found conclusive evidence that Madeline was abducted with the intention of trafficking or exploitation. But there are a few witness statements I think are also worth considering alongside this theory. Two or three days before the McCanns arrived in Praia de Luge, a British man named Paul Gordon was staying in apartment 5A on his own vacation. One afternoon, a man stopped by. He explained that he was collecting donations for an orphanage in Espiche, a village less than two miles from Praia de Luge. Gordon remembers that the man flashed an ID badge and had a pamphlet showing photos of the orphanage. Gordon gave the man 10 euros and he went on his way. A handful of other residents in Praia de Luge also encountered men raising money for the same orphanage. And four of them occurred on the afternoon of May 3rd, the day Madeline disappeared. The men they described were all different. One had a mustache, another was clean shaven, a third wore glasses. They all had different accents, but each one carried ID badges and pamphlets with photos of the orphanage, so it's safe to assume they're related. Except officials later learned there is no orphanage in a speech. It doesn't exist. So what were the men really doing? One of the encounters may be telling. At first, it was just like the rest. A man knocked at the door, asking the woman who answered to donate to an orphanage. But as he spoke, the woman noticed the man wasn't making eye contact. He was looking past her at her three-year-old daughter. Totally unnerved, she asked him to leave. A few hours later, the woman saw the same man standing at the end of her street. The next day, she went upstairs for a few minutes, leaving her daughter alone downstairs. When she came back down, she caught a glimpse of a man running out of the house. The woman was convinced it was the charity collector, that he snuck in through the patio door and he'd intended to take her daughter. While this is the only home invasion connected to the charity collectors, it wasn't a singular event in the area. Authorities have revealed that from 2002 to 2010, there were 28 home invasions targeting British children, all within 40 miles of Praia de Luge. In almost all the cases, there was no sign of forced entry and nothing was stolen. Journalist Anthony Summers and Robin Swan reported, quote, nine children had been sexually assaulted and there were six other occasions in which an intruder had been interrupted before he could carry out an attack, end quote. In addition to these incidents, break-ins at the Ocean Club were on the rise in the months before Madeline disappeared. The most common targets were apartments on the lower floors, like apartment 5A. Pamela Fenn lived in the apartment directly above 5A, the week before Madeline vanished, she was sitting in her living room, watching TV when she heard a noise in her bedroom. By the time she got there, all she could see was the back of a man's head as he scrambled out her window. When the McCanns arrived in Praia de Luge for their vacation in 2007, they didn't know about any of this. Not the break-ins at the Ocean Club or the assaults targeting British children. If they had, would they have left their own kids alone in an unlocked apartment? Would Kate have pressed Madeline further when she asked why her mother didn't come when she'd cried the night before? It's easy 
to get caught in the trap of hindsight. But as a member of the media, the one thing I don't want is for the McCanns to regret making the world pay attention. And we have an opportunity to make sure they don't. Madeline's story struck a chord with the public because it played on a universal fear. Something similar could happen to any child. Statistically, that's not the case. Child abductions by strangers are rare, but they happen. And they're often part of a larger issue, one that we can take steps to combat. Jim Gamble, a former senior officer with the Child Exploitation and Online Protection Center, consulted on the McCann case. He argues that more resources and education are necessary to combat the global issue of child exploitation, because this isn't unique to Portugal. Ernie Allen, the former president and CEO of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, reported in The Disappearance of Madeline McCann that globally, human trafficking represents a $150 billion a year industry. And though child pornography sites represent only 2% of the dark web, they account for 80% of the traffic. These numbers are huge. Jim Gamble added that in the UK alone, it's estimated that 100,000 individual IP addresses are accessing child pornography at any given moment. Violence and exploitation of children doesn't always get the attention from the public it deserves, because frankly, it's uncomfortable to think about. But shying away from ugly truths doesn't help bring change. Education, awareness, and advocacy will. Which brings me back to Madeline. Ian Horrocks is a former detective inspector and spent 30 years working for the UK Metropolitan Police. When he reviewed Madeline's case and compared the details with other child kidnappings, he felt there was a good chance she was taken to be kept by someone who would raise her as a part of their family. If that's the case, there's a very good chance that she's still alive. So until there's a proven answer, don't let a headline sway you. In June of 2020, German investigators named Christian Bruckner, a convicted sex offender, as a suspect in Madeline's case. They are 100% convinced he abducted and killed her. But at the time of this recording, no charges have been filed against Bruckner. German prosecutors are still gathering evidence. And as we know, investigators have felt sure about a suspect before. The UK Metropolitan Police have not yet found evidence to prove Madeline was killed. And so her family keeps searching for answers. We all do. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 40 people disappeared in the United States alone. For specifics on Madeline's case and what you can do to help, please visit findmadeline.com. It provides information about Leaving No Stone Unturned, a not-for-profit company dedicated to finding Madeline, supporting her family, and bringing her abductors to justice. The website also includes police sketches of persons of interest in the case, based on witness descriptions. 
there's a contact form available to anyone who has information that could help identify them. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. Among the many sources we used for today's episode, we found the book Looking for Madeline by Anthony Summers and Robin Swan, and the Netflix series The Disappearance of Madeline McCann incredibly helpful. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Disappearances was written by Abigail Cannon, with writing assistance by Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Anya Bayerly, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.